Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Kyle, bringing you this week's episode. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Game designer Elan Lee visited Google in 2019 to talk about the work that went into the record-setting Exploding Kittens Kickstarter. Exploding Kittens is an irreverent, highly strategic card game version of Russian Roulette and is the most funded game in the history of Kickstarter. In this talk, Elan discusses how his groundbreaking work on alternate reality games such as The Beast and I Love Bees made him aware of the power of positive online communities. In addition, he describes how his analysis of previous Kickstarter campaigns showed him the connection between daily community engagement and acquiring new backers. Originally published in July of 2019, here is Alan Lee, Exploding Kittens and the Key to Running a Successful Kickstarter. Hey everyone, my name is Alan. I was trying to figure out what the best thing to talk about today would be. You know, just knowing all we do here is we invite cool people up on stage. So I had to live up to that bar, uh, be a cool person. I thought I would talk about this project of kind of how Exploding Kittens came to be and all of the projects that led up to it, some of the successes and failures. But as I go through this, I know we're going to have questions at the end. If there are things that you guys want to know about as we go, please just feel free to raise your hand, interrupt me. I totally love being interrupted because if you save everything till the end, uh, all everybody remembers is like the last question. And if the last question is, uh, what, what font did you use up there? Then you walk out with just knowing, oh, Alon really likes Ariel. So uh, please feel free to interrupt and we'll just kind of roll through it as we go. I want to start talking about Kickstarter. Who here has backed a project on Kickstarter before? A few, half, about half of us? I am addicted to Kickstarter. For those who don't know, the way Kickstarter works is you have a, a cool concept, you put it up on the site, you ask people essentially to give you money before the project is made. And it's just a way to kickstart, as it were, an idea. Get some funds in the door, create a prototype, send it out to all of your backers, uh, and then in success you go on to actually mass produce the thing. Like I said, I'm addicted to this site. It's the coolest place. You can get the most amazing projects because anything that anybody thinks up, they can put up on Kickstarter. I've backed more than 400 projects, including, uh, you know when you, you're driving a car, you put your hand out the window and you kind of like surf the waves of the wind up and down. Uh, someone made a little surfboard you can actually put on your fingers to surf outside your car, which I, uh, they actually shipped this thing and it's super fun. I've backed a desktop slinky treadmill, which, does exactly that forever and ever. <laughs> Someone decided that umbrellas uh, needed a little bit of a revamp. And what this is, is literally a battery and an engine that uh, they've stuffed in a tube and you're walking down the street and it starts to rain and you turn the thing on and it blows the rain away from you, I, I guess onto other people. So that was a fun one. And this was the most fun thing I've ever backed. This is a desktop jellyfish aquarium. And I love jellyfish. I've always been obsessed with jellyfish, but they're impossible to keep because they're so fragile. Anything touches a jellyfish, it just shreds them. And so tanks have always been really, really difficult. So what they did was they created this really smart idea called a desktop jellyfish tank, and it runs on the principle of laminar flow. 
So what laminar flow basically means is they push uh, a jet of water through this circular aquarium, and because the water is constantly moving in a circle, if a jellyfish gets near the side of the tank, it gently escorts them back to the center of the tank where they're fine. Uh, this is me with the tank uh, feeding my jellyfish, which they fed X to you, which is pretty wild. But you might notice something odd about this tank, which are those rocks at the bottom. I did not put those rocks there. They came as part of the thing. It's their filter system. It's the way that they uh, filter out debris from the tank. So instead of this beautiful laminar flow concept, um, it actually looks a little bit more like this. The jellyfish are gently escorted into these rocks where they are immediately shredded uh, and then they FedEx you more jellyfish every few weeks to try to fix this problem. It got so bad that they had to shut down their Facebook page. A newspaper, uh, uh, I think it was the LA Times, said, local startup crowdfunds jellyfish slaughterhouse. Um, so, Kickstarter. There's some really good things and there's some really bad things up on Kickstarter. I've always wanted to put up a project there. My whole life, I have been building digital products. Like Matthew said, I, I worked at Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, I worked on the Xbox for a while. I actually was part of the original Xbox launch team. I got the first Xbox out the door and later on the Xbox One. And so my whole life was spent building video games and other digital products. And I finally came to this point where I, I, I thought, this is, this is my audience. This is what I'm doing. Anyone see a big problem with this picture? I'll tell you. Very, very lonely. Very isolating. I actually went to my brother's house and uh, walked in the door, and my niece and nephew were there who are, were uh, five years old, both six years old at the time, and they didn't even say hello. They were sitting on the living room floor playing a game that I had built, and they were lonely. They were lonely in a room full of people, and it was so depressing for me, and I realized that I was contributing to that problem. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And I thought, when I was a kid, this is what it looked like. You know, me and my brothers were standing around, we were playing physical games, we were laughing, and we were really interacting with each other. And I thought, why don't I just try that instead? Why, just for, a, just for a second, why don't I try something physical? So I resigned from Microsoft, and uh, I built a card game. It was a simple concept. I, I had this idea of Russian roulette meets a deck of cards. Uh, you'll just go through the deck, everybody drawing cards, try not to draw the bomb, because the bomb will explode, and every other card is safe. They do special things to try to uh, make it so you don't have to draw the bomb. It was a very, very simple concept. I took a deck of poker cards, I scribbled all over it, I tested it out with a bunch of friends, and uh, I thought, okay, I think this is ready for Kickstarter. I decided to call the thing Bomb Squad, and I tested it with all of my friends, just everyone who would spare five minutes, I would force them to play Bomb Squad over and over and over again. And one of the people I showed it to was my friend Matthew Inman, who draws the oatmeal. Are there any oatmeal fans here? Anyone? Yeah, a bunch? Awesome. Um, for those who didn't raise your hand, I love this because I get to introduce you to the oatmeal. The oatmeal is an online comic. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Matt just draws funny stuff that pops into his head like this. I won't, you know, I'll step out of the way. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> he just has a really warped brain and a really unique ability to put those machinations in his head onto paper. This is the three most pertinent bullet points of a woman wearing nothing but a t-shirt. Uh, here's the same panel for a man. <laughs> this is how to draw hands in three easy steps. I do not need to read to you all, so uh, just uh, tell me when I should advance.
Got it? Someone yell next. Next. Tell me when. <laughs> there we go. How to dry hands in three easy steps. So uh, I showed him Bomb Squad. He really liked Bomb Squad. And he said, listen, I've always wanted to work on a card game. I've always wanted to work with you on a project. Why don't we do this together? I'll draw all the cards for you. We'll use this game design. We'll put it up on Kickstarter just as a little weekend project. Let's try to raise, I don't know, $10,000 because that's, that'll let us print out a few hundred copies of the game. And we'll just send it to all our friends. We'll order some pizza and beers and we'll have a little party stuffing boxes and we'll send it out. By the way, the other thing you have to change is the name. I hate the name. <laughs> Why don't instead, because it's too on the nose. Of course you're scared of bombs, of course. Why don't you be scared of something less obvious like cute, adorable, fuzzy little kittens? Um, in fact, why don't we call the game Exploding Kittens? And that's really how the game was born. We packaged it up. We were ready to go on to Kickstarter. This is what Kickstarter looked like uh, right before we launched. These are the top four games in Kickstarter history. Uh, way over there on your left is Ouya. Uh, they raised $8.6 million, the top funded game in Kickstarter history. And we looked at this, each of these raising you know, four or five million dollars. We looked at these and thought, okay, so this is what massive success looks like. We're only going to try to raise $10,000. But it's good to at least know what, what the absolute winners look like, what the, the people at the top of uh, their game, the top of Kickstarter look like. And so we looked at them. We chuckled a little. We said, let's see how we do on our own. Let's get started. We put up the page. Like I said, we were trying to raise $10,000. We'll do so in 30 days. Everyone can jump onto this page, give us as much money as they would like, and in return, we'll just give you a copy of our game as soon as it's ready. So we held our breath, hit go, and holy crap, we got funded in 20 minutes. We raised $10,000 in 20 minutes, and it did not stop there. It went crazy. Seven hours later, we were looking at a million dollars raised for this game. By the second day, we were at two million and then three million and on and on. This just runaway insanity went. And we were a little, a little bit nervous uh, because, holy crap, that's a lot of orders we have to fulfill. But once we started getting used to that, once we started saying, okay, cool, we're going to actually have a big success here, we started looking at a trend. And this is what the trend looked like. Really, really strong opening day, like I said. But every day after that, it dropped a little. And then it started to really drop, like really scary drop. And while day six, $100,000 in one day is phenomenal, more than most Kickstarter projects ever make, compared to day one, we saw a very, very scary trend. And we thought, all right, we got two choices. Choice number one, we just sit back and let this happen. Let this thing crater into the ground. We've already made more money than we can possibly fulfill, right? Because we have to fulfill all of those orders. Um, and we just let this thing die. A nice, quiet, elegant death. Option number two, we look back at those top four people and we try to aim for the number one spot. And to aim for the number one spot is really tricky, especially staring at a trend like this. But we thought, 8.5, we're at like three. Maybe, and we've done three in one week. Is it possible to hit this? And the question is, how the hell did they do this? This is insane. And I'm a huge data nerd. I love data. I love numbers. I download every bit of data I can possibly get. 
So what I, what I did was I found all the statistics on OUYA, how they actually pulled this off. What you're looking at is the number of dollars raised by OUYA every day of their campaign. They had the same terrifying trend that we had, uh, and they stayed really low for a while, but then at the end they had a few little spikes and a huge ending. And so I thought, how are they doing this? Like, where, where does a huge ending come from? Where do those spikes come from? How do we simulate that same thing? Because, by the way, they also had a much bigger start than we did. So I downloaded some more data. And on Kickstarter, for every page, uh, there's community boards. So it's just message boards where people talk about the project. And I started looking at the number of posts on their page per day. And I could look at the timestamps of when money came in and when posts came in. And what you notice is a one-to-one -one correlation between these things. Every time people, they could get people to talk on their web page, an equivalent amount of money would show up in pledges. There was literally this really beautiful one-to-one -one correlation. And I started thinking about that, like this is probably the secret that nobody's talking about. Because the way that everybody thinks about crowdfunding is focus on the funding. In fact, don't worry about the crowd part. Focus on the funding. Let's get as much money as we can. That's exactly what we did for our first week. But that data shows actually we should be thinking about this the other way. This is how we should think about it. A huge, huge crowd. How do we mobilize a massive crowd? And actually, let's not think about the funding at all. And what does that mean? How do we do that? And I realized I've actually been training for this moment my entire life. I'm really good at mobilizing crowds. Uh, so I wanna talk to you about a few of the projects that kind of trained me for that pivotal, that pivotal one week moment uh, during our Kickstarter campaign. Um, any Halo fans out there? Halo, yeah, lots of Halo players, awesome. Uh, so I worked on Halo 1 when I was at Microsoft. For Halo 2, uh, I, I, I left and the, Microsoft invited me back asking me to work on the marketing campaign for them. And uh, they said, what we wanna do is create a global event uh, about aliens invading the Earth, the story of Halo 2. And I thought, well, that's a beautiful concept, but it's actually been done before. Um, this is Orson Welles. This is War of the Worlds. He convinced an entire nation that aliens were really invading the Earth through these radio broadcasts. And so I thought, why don't we just do that again? So we wrote, recorded uh, a, a six-hour radio drama that we called I Love Bees. The reason we called it I Love Bees is not important in a very long discussion that won't interest anyone, but we called it I Love Bees, and we tied it to this Halo thing, and we thought... Uh, instead of broadcasting it over the radio to fool an entire nation, what if we tried something a little updated? Why don't we broadcast it over payphones? Literally tens of thousands of ringing payphones all over the United States and eventually all over the world. And each of them had a little two-minute clip from this radio drama, and they all fit together like a giant puzzle. And you'd be walking down the street, and you hear a payphone ring, and you walk up to that payphone, and you pick it up, and the story unfolds for you. And then you start to upload that story to the community and bit by bit, they all piece them together. These payphones turned into events. People started wearing costumes to show up. People started forming these huge groups uh, to show up for a single ringing payphone uh, because we're starting to mobilize that crowd. We're starting to get them excited about this story and unlocking, unlocking narrative in a way that they've never seen before. Um, 
then I, I went on, like almost immediately after that project, Trent Reznor, the lead singer for Nine Inch Nails, called me up and said, I heard about Isla Bees, I heard about a bunch of the other projects you've been working on, I've got this new album coming out called Year Zero, I wanna do the same sort of thing. I wanna mobilize a crowd around an album and I wanna tell a story embedded inside this album. And I thought, oh man, this is so cool. This is so much fun. So uh, what I got to do here was embed little bits of story everywhere in this album, in the actual lyrics, in the actual audio, in concerts, in t-shirts, in music videos. We did like the back of the CD, the back of a normal CD says basically don't pirate this CD, please. Ours, we replaced it with the United States Bureau of Morality warning. Uh, be a patriot, be an informer, rat on your neighbors who are pirating this thing. But if you called this, it would bring you right into the story and it would point you at a website and the website would point you at another phone number and on and on you would go down this rabbit hole into the story of Year Zero, which told uh, kind of a dystopian futuristic story about the government having too much power, uh, impeding on all of our civil rights and what were we as a community going to do about it. And that was the story of this album and we told it in so many different ways. When you look at a waveform of audio, um, it normally just looks like a waveform. You've all seen this before. We found really creative ways of actually embedding information in those waveforms. So as you looked at them, phone numbers would appear or a ghostly hand reaching down from the sky as you looked at the audio uh, from that album. Uh, one of the other super fun things we did was the, the disc itself. That black disc is the Year Zero CD. It's totally black. It says Year Zero, nothing else. Put it in your CD player, listen to the album. When you eject the disc, a different CD comes out of your CD player. This white one comes out. Uh, now we've got a binary puzzle on there. We've got URLs that you can visit. The way we did this was a thermal ink. We coated the CD with. The heat from your CD player would eat away at the ink, revealing the secrets underneath. It would then grow back so you could do the trick over and over again for all your friends. But it was this really cool magic trick that you could hold in your hand and tell everyone about, which helped this thing grow and grow and grow. Again, mobilizing that crowd. Um, we did another project uh, called E-Doc Laundry, which was um, when George W. Bush got elected for his second term, a bunch of friends of mine started complaining. Oh, democracy's broken, nothing works, uh, our votes don't matter, and they, they would complain and complain and complain. And I don't care what your political affiliations are, I hate hearing that. Because when I would ask, well, who did you vote for? The answer was always the same. I didn't vote because it doesn't matter. And I would get so, so frustrated at that message. Again, I don't care who you vote for, but the fact that you didn't vote is so infuriating. And uh, I did what anyone would do. I started a clothing company. And the way this clothing company worked is we made really cool designs, like as fun as we could possibly come up with, interesting, innovative designs and patterns. But the trick is embedded in every one of these is a secret message you gotta maybe fold your shirt in a certain way to read it, or get it near another shirt, or get it hot or cold or wet. We used thermal inks and glow-in-the-dark inks and infrared inks and all kinds of creative stuff to unlock these secrets. If you found a secret on your shirt, you would take it to our website, you'd enter it in, and a little movie would start playing, a little two-minute movie. And the movie started to hint at this much larger story. It was a murder mystery. It was the story of a woman on the run from the law for a crime she didn't commit, and only you can save her, and thank God you bought the shirt because she needs your help. And they would all fit together like a TV series, and they would all end on a cliffhanger. And it was really cool because if you wanted to find out what happened next, 
cool, go buy another shirt. <laughs> um, it worked really, really well. Um, but remember I said it was all because of this guy. Uh, I love hanging on this picture for just a second because there's just so much to say. The story we told about EDOC, uh, EDOC is actually just the word code spelled backwards, uh, which was our first really poorly held secret. Um, the story was about a band, and the band had this incredible message that they wanted to spread to everyone, but their evil record producer was uh, kind of uh, suppressing them, and then one of their band members got murdered, and the whole band was falling apart, despite the fact that their music was really good, and they had this incredible message. And what we never told anyone, but what people started to kind of figure out was each one of these characters has a historic counterpart. Jeff, the lead singer and guitarist, was Thomas Jefferson, and down the list it went. John Adams, Benjamin, Frank, Lynn, with Lynn the producer. Um, but this whole thing was actually a history lesson. It was telling the same story of today about a group of disenfranchised young people who had a very, very strong message, but they weren't sure how to express it. And they had a very, very powerful governmental organization that was suppressing them. And they had to do something about it. And eventually someone got killed and eventually they needed help. And without anybody, without us ever saying it, we were teaching people the history of the United States and the story of the founding fathers told through secrets on t-shirts. And I'm so proud to say that despite the fact that we never said anything, this crowd felt mobilized and they started canvassing their neighborhoods and they started registering uh, rock the vote parties. And we got two and a half million new registered voters through this campaign uh, by building these t-shirts and embedding this crazy story inside. And for the next election, there was the largest turnout for my demographic in history. And I like to take 100% of the credit for that. <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you one final, one final story, uh, which is Vanishing Point. This was um, a project, uh, again, from Microsoft, where they asked us to build the world's largest scavenger hunt. And we did. We, build, we built a story spread out across the world. We, we did building projection in 16 different cities. Every shape, every color that we projected on buildings and famous monuments was a clue. Which ways are those arrows pointing? What are they pointing at? What, what is in another city that represents the other half of that picture? And people had to collaborate and share information and scour their cities looking for these crazy glowing buildings to solve the clues. Uh, we did skywriting uh, across a whole bunch of different cities. Again, you had to figure out what the sky was telling you and collaborate with the other cities. Um, we did the largest fireworks display in Seattle's history. Every explosion, every color, every orientation of the explosions was all a clue uh, to lead you to the end of this giant scavenger hunt. So this was really fun. It was uh, such a, a, an important... Um, moment in my, my sort of career as I realized how you get these crowds motivated. We should, I guess, jump back to uh, where we left off, sort of our, our, our story, uh, which was here, <laughs> where we had gone through a week of this crowdfunding campaign and things were looking pretty grim and we wanted to empower this crowd. We wanted to motivate this crowd and mobilize this crowd and we were pretty sure we knew how uh, based on all these other learnings. So here's what we did. Most Kickstarter campaigns have these things called stretch goals. Stretch goals are really straightforward. It basically says, look, uh, you pledged $20 to get the game, and that let us raise $10,000, which is amazing. But if we can raise $100,000, we will upgrade everybody's game for free. We'll put more cards in the box. If we can raise 
$200,000 will give you a fancy carrying case. On and on it goes. These, these financial milestones called stretch goals. Help us raise more money. All we care about is funding. Help us raise more money and we'll make the game better. And we knew that was exactly the wrong thing to do. So we had our own version of stretch goals. We set up just the same as everybody else. Look, we're going to do extra fun things. We're going to double the number of cards. We're going to give you extra games. We're going to do this deluxe upgraded box. But we don't care about funding. We care about the crowd. So to unlock these things, what we want you to do are these things called achievements. Brand new invention for Kickstarter. We actually had to work pretty hard on making Kickstarter accommodate these things. And the achievements looked like this. It was a giant grid of ridiculous activities. Um, notice no funding is, is mentioned anymore. What we're talking about now is one of our characters was called Beard Cat. Hey, uh, we want to see 25 pictures of a real beard cat. We want to see pictures of a real taco cat, another character from our game. How about people wearing cat ears? How about uh, 10 Batmans in a hot tub? Ridiculous, stupid, insane things that will cost you nothing, but all we want to do is play. We're done talking about funding. We're done funding. What we want to do is raise a crowd now. And we put this out there. We called the whole thing Update 9. Kickstarter has you update, uh, excuse me, label all your updates. This one happened to be our ninth update. And so we said, look, any picture you submit, any fun thing you make for us, just put the word Update 9 in it somewhere so we know you're not using really old material and you've created something new because we want to host the largest party on the internet and you're all invited and we just want to play. So, did it work? Those uh, 25 pictures of a beard cat, we said, 25 people surely can figure out what the hell a beard cat might be and show us. Uh, and sure enough, these were amazing. People started actually playing with us and doing these ridiculous, awesome things, which we would then post uh, to our own social and on our own Kickstarter page, elevating them even farther, encouraging even more people to participate. And so these pictures just kept pouring in. Uh, 25 pictures of a real Taco Cat. By the way, Taco Cat is my favorite character in the game because he's a palindrome, right? Taco Cat forwards and backwards, same word, Taco Cat. Uh, and so we said, we want to see what a real Taco Cat looks like. And these things started showing up. This one, I just got to point out, this one in your bottom, bottom left corner is one of my favorite things that was ever submitted in the entire thing. This woman works at an animal shelter. That document that she's holding is showing that she has legally named that cat Taco Cat. For reals. <laughs> as real a Taco Cat as you can possibly get. Uh, we were so excited by that. <laughs> uh, all right, so we had sort of an easy one. We just want to see 10 people wearing cat ears. We got literally hundreds of submissions. This is just a fun thing. People hanging out, buy a bunch of cat ears, put them on, take a picture, and you're done. You've contributed. You're going to make the game better for free because you played with us and you took a silly picture. Uh, so we thought, let's make that a little harder because so many people could do that one. But what about 50 people? Where do you even get 50 set of cat ears? This one, it turns out, was still too easy. We got 20 or 30 submissions at the 50 level, which is nuts. Uh, so we said, all right, let's just make this impossible. Can anyone get 100 people? And uh, we only got one submission, but holy crap, in this picture are, I counted, 234 people wearing cat ears. Um, so that was pretty exciting to see. Uh, can you get a picture of 10 Batmans in a hot tub? Yeah, that was actually pretty easy for them and hilarious. Um, 
But this whole thing started to roll out and people started to submit things that we didn't even ask for. This is um, a master Lego builder who took uh, cards from the game and built Lego creations that he then mailed to our office. Um, this is not something we asked for, but of course we rewarded. Uh, people started doing crazy things like making plush toys for us. Uh, they started more plush toys. Uh, balloon art we saw a ton of. We saw people start to make clothing for us. Um, all because everybody wanted to contribute to this party. Um, these are, we got a number of these. These are people who got real tattoos from characters in a Kickstarter campaign for a game they've never even seen before. I have all kinds of feelings about this, but holy crap, real tattoos, permanent body mutilation for a 30-day Kickstarter campaign because we're raising a crowd and not funding. This was one of the videos that was sent in. I just need to play this for a few seconds. All right, you get the idea. Uh, we then sent out a bunch of playtest copies to people because people were asking about it, uh, and they just started having a blast. It was, it was people just continuing our message of invite all your friends, have fun. This I put in just for you guys. Um, this, is, uh, this is my Gmail account. Um, what? <laughs> Here's the important part. Uh, the user you're trying to contact is receiving mail at a rate that prevents additional messages from blah, blah, blah. Um, just in case you would all like to know the policies of your company, this is the mail you get when you get more than 1,000 mails per second on Gmail. <laughs> That was fun. One of my favorite things was uh, for the, that play test, we sent out uh, an early version of our instructions. This actually is in the final instructions too. Um, for normal games, it's pick a player to go first, right? The youngest, the oldest, whatever it is. Um, for us, uh, we had all kinds of things, but my favorite was we put in, who has the shortest spleen? Because uh, I thought that was funny and stupid and why not put it in the instructions? And uh, then someone <laughs> tweeted at us uh, when they read this thing, my friend Amy is an ultrasound tech. Who has the shortest spleen? And I thought, no freaking way. <laughs> and uh, she said, yes, freaking way. Uh, she brought all her friends into the hospital. They got ultrasounds. And if you ever play with Amy, uh, she goes first because uh, she has the shortest spleen. It's just to show people went crazy for this because when we stop talking about money, they start talking about fun. And that's really the magical thing that happened here. Um, they unlocked almost every challenge we could throw at them. And before we were talking about this, this one-to-one -one correlation between Ouya's messages and their money raised. Well, now let's look at them compared to us. Here's where number nine hit. I am so proud of this graph. This, this was you know, 10 years in the making, but look at that. When you stop talking about money, look at what happens. And we just got inundated by happy, excited, friendly people who just wanted to have fun with us. And the money was secondary. And the money came, but it was secondary. And the moral of the story is, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present to you Ouya, the second most crowdfunded game in Kickstarter history. Thanks, yeah. Uh, so that's it. Uh, if there's questions, I'm happy to answer them. I told you guys to interrupt me, and no one did. Uh, so if you've got questions now, I'm happy to answer them. If there's other specific, I've worked on so much stuff. If there's specific stuff you want to hear about, let me know, and I've got pictures and videos and fun stuff.
thanks for coming again. Yeah. Um, and so my question is for like alternate reality games. Some people get very involved with it, very uh, intense. And for I Love Bees, I heard a story about one person who during a hurricane still camped out and was trying to follow up on the story and was at the, the payphone being like, hey, I want to get the next clue. And they had to get told to go to cover, right? Yeah. Um, people, people are nuts. Like we, we, so we built this very elaborate system that would push out these calls to all these payphones. We had this army of, of payphone interns to find the payphones for us. But um, eventually it was all automated and it would push the story out. And uh, when these really bad hurricanes hit in Florida, our system was on autopilot and it was still sending out the calls. And so we, we realized there was a problem and we started manually canceling the calls and posting to the user base, look, don't go out. Like this is, this is a stupid game. It's not worth risking your life. Um, but people started to say, uh, where, where's Tom? Where, wait, Tom said he was actually going out. Where's Tom? And what was crazy about that is there's 2 million people playing this game. And for the group in Florida, they were so tight, closely knit, tightly knit, that um, they knew Tom. And they knew that he was really good at answering these payphones, no matter what the conditions. And he was actually going to go out in this hurricane. And every we just we blasted out this message, find Tom, tell him to come home. <laughs> this is not worth it. This is ridiculous. And no one could reach him. And for like two hours, it was just dead. And we had no idea where he was or if something horrible had happened to him. And we got our actor, our lead actor, uh, this woman named uh, Kristen Rutherford, who uh, is incredible. She, she was um, the lead actor on almost all the phone calls, and she was one of the main characters in the game. We, got, we gave her the number of the payphone that we were pretty sure he was going to call, and we had her manually call it. So that, and just ring and ring and ring, and she'd call me and she'd say, he didn't answer, call again. Ring and ring, he didn't answer, call again. And after like, 40 minutes of calling, he actually answered the phone in the middle of this crazy hurricane. And I wish I had the audio recording <laughs> uh, of the insanity this poor guy went through. But she had to like break character and say, go home. <laughs> like, this is, you are above and beyond. You're great. You're amazing. Go home. This is not worth it. Um, and we had, uh, what was really funny is the night before we launched this campaign. So I, I have to check everything with Microsoft um, before launching something insane like this. And uh, I really like to give them no warning at all. Uh, or ability to change things. So I submitted the entire design doc to them the night before launch and said, this is what we're going, this is how we've already spent all your money. This is what we're going to launch tomorrow. Uh, 9 a.m. is, is uh, when we're going. And their lawyer read it and called me up that night at like 10 p.m. And he said, I love this. This is the most creative thing I've ever seen. This is going to be so good. I love it. We just need you to make one small change. Um, you can't use pay phones. <laughs> And it was like, okay, yeah, got it, sure. We'll, we'll cancel payphones, got it, and hung up, and of course, just launched it anyway. But turns out he was right. Uh, <laughs> payphones were a really dumb idea, and it almost got some poor kid killed. Hi, um, have you tried any AR games? Uh, quite a bit, yeah. I, I really like AR. Um, I have not yet seen an AR game that I think is not isolating, not very lonely making. Uh, but uh, I play them all. I have all the systems. Um, and uh, I'm still waiting for that, that thing to, to reach out and, and capture my attention. 
Hi, thanks so much for coming today. It was a really great talk. I did miss the first five minutes, so if you already covered this, feel free to just tell me to go watch the video on YouTube later. Um, Cards Against Humanity came out about four years before Exploding Kittens. Uh, about eight years, yeah. Oh, eight years, okay. I just Googled that, so something is wrong with Google. <laughs> Can somebody check into that? Um, <laughs> okay, so did that have a big influence on changing the um, mentality of, of how we're playing games? Because I grew up playing games, um, like you were talking about, sometimes they're very isolating, sometimes they're family games and group games with your siblings. Um, and for me, Cards Against Humanity was kind of a, a breakthrough into, oh yeah, I like gaming, I forgot that I like to play games and I don't want to be isolated in wearing some AR, VR kind of outfit to do it. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, maybe I've got the year wrong if you've Googled it. Uh, I, I, Cards <laughs> Google's Against never wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cards Against Humanity started as a Kickstarter project. So whenever they came out, it's actually very well documented. Um, the, uh, they changed everything. They, uh, like you said, they kind of reminded people that games were fun. Um, but the way they did it, uh, I, I, I'm very good friends with them. Um, I love that game. I've played probably more of that game than anyone else on the planet. Uh, and it's because what I learned from that game and what I think kind of every all game designers learn from that is that games should not be entertaining. Games should make the people you're playing with entertaining. And previously, before Cards Against Humanity, like when you look at games from the like 50s through the 80s, games worked so hard to be entertaining. Monopoly and Uno and the game of life and Stratego and all these games, which I play all the time and I really like, they were trying very hard to be as entertaining as possible. Cards Against Humanity said, no, screw that. The whole concept is the people you're playing with have to be the entertainment value. And when I sat down to design Exploding Kittens, that was like, you know, written on my wall. And if you look at the game with kind of a, a, a keen design eye, um, every card in Exploding Kittens is designed to create a relationship between you and another player at the table. Very, very specifically designed that way. Because the mantra is, create a relationship, let them have fun on their own. Create another relationship, let them have fun on their own. And that relationship can be uh, positive or adversarial or whatever it is, but it has to be them. You have to cede the control over to them. And I think that's what Cards Against Humanity kind of taught the gaming world uh, and ushered in this incredible renaissance of tabletop gaming. And I think that you probably drew a lot of influence from Uno, I would guess, in Exploding Kittens. Yeah, our game gets compared to Uno quite a bit. Uno is like the game I was raised on. Yeah. And so whatever I do is based on Uno, whether I like it or not. Yeah, you got to <laughs> skip a turn. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, as far as like electronic games or video games that could be said to not be isolating, are you aware of, like, for example, the like Jackbox party games? Yeah, uh, Jackbox Party Games are a great example of non-isolating games. The other one um, that I've spent way too much time playing is um, Space Team, if anyone's played that on your iPhone or Android phone. Uh, they, that game, uh, for me, is like the epitome of make the people you're playing with the entertainment. Um, if you don't have it, go download this game. It is really just the finest thing out there. Um, all the Jackbox series, I think they've got like seven series out there now, like seven different versions. Um, 
you know, it's probably like 80% of them are just spectacular. And so you'll buy, you buy a pack and there's like seven or eight games in there and you will love, love five of them. Uh, and that's a pretty good ratio for a giant pack of games. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. But really the litmus test for me is just like, what is the point of this game? Is this game trying to entertain me or is it trying to make the people I'm playing with entertaining? And games that so clearly pass that uh, are, are, are the games I love and cherish and spend all my time playing with my friends. Can you also share some, related to that question, can you also share some insight on like the game that you play uh, with uh, your friends physically with you versus... I will just say, just because I love plugging this game, uh, there's a game out there uh, called Happy Salmon. It's a physical card game. It is the game I have played most in the last year and a half, probably. I think it's probably the finest game on the market. Uh, go, go buy this game. It's, it's, you know, it's a eight or $10 investment. Go buy this game. The game lasts 90 seconds, start to finish. And uh, I've never played it for less than two hours because the moment you're done, you just want to play again. Uh, it is a game, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm tempted to just tell you how to play, but you really should see the cards. It, it'll take you five minutes to learn. But this game involves a lot of very, very fast and casual physical contact. High-fiving people, fist-bumping people, running in a circle around uh, uh, people. <coughs> and the endorphins and the adrenaline that uh, result from this super, super simple game um, if you are not smiling and laughing while playing this game, you have no soul. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's, it, it is games like that that uh, allow people to celebrate their group of friends, their playmates, uh, that I, I think are currently, we're watching, they're, they're changing the world right now. Um, the board game industry went from you know, a few tens of millions of dollars a year to now well over a billion. Uh, and that's because of games. It's because of this renaissance. It's because people are getting a little bit um, overwhelmed by their screens. Um, obviously, screens will al always be a part of our lives, but people are starting to say, look, there has to be time when we walk away from these things. There has to be a few moments at night, a few moments on the weekends, whatever it is, where we just enjoy the people we're around and to have the tools to enable us to do so are becoming more and more a welcome addition into all of our homes. Yeah, but to add that, like the the bandwidth is increasing, you know, when these guys are playing games, actually they talk to their friends like even though they are not physically with them and maybe there could be some like video or virtual reality, whatever to connect them. Oh, I, 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 not only do I agree with that, but we're, we're definitely starting to see it, right? Like as the bandwidth goes up, as the, as the communities are being more and more emphasized uh, in, in the world of video games, those kinds of interactions uh, are certainly increasing. Um, and it's really exciting to see, and it's so necessary. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I used to be 100% anti-screen, but we now did an Exploding Kittens uh, mobile game, uh, specifically because we realized, look, we don't. There's ways to do this. There's ways to encourage people that, although they're looking at a screen, to still celebrate the people they're playing with, the people in the room, to laugh out loud, pass your phone around, uh, and so all those things are very, very doable. And some of the smartest people out there are working on it. And I love that we're all sort of uh, stealing and collaborating and and helping each other uh, uh, accomplish that goal. So it's uh, such an exciting time to be building games right now. 
so so much of what you've done has been building communities to you know build your products. Um, but what do you do when communities become too big and then negative influences start to kind of percolate? Yeah. Um, so here's a great a great example of that. Um, the very first alternate reality game I worked on um, was called The Beast. And it was a, a project associated with Steven Spielberg's movie AI. Spielberg uh, asked me to essentially build a sequel to the movie AI, and then we would release it before AI and let people live in that world before the movie came out. And uh, I, me and my team spent six months building this thing. And we spent six months building six months worth of content. And the idea was, look, the audience is going to take uh, six months to go through this content. And while they're going through all the content we built, we'll spend that time building another six months of content. So we'll have a year-long game uh, built over the course, a staggered year. Uh, and we should be fine. And uh, the first day, so many people showed up that they digested all six months worth of content in 20 minutes. <laughs> That was a very big crowd. <laughs> um, and, and, and it got really scary. Like at that moment, we realized we've, this is a different kind of game. And we have to play it and create it in real time. And uh, I'd say when giant audiences show up, there's two very important things you have to do. One is you have to stop thinking about this as a pre-canned thing. It must be collaborative. It must be created and edited and adjusted in real time so that it feels alive, so that that many brains throwing themselves at this thing feel like they're throwing it at, at a living entity that is worth their time and attention. And the second thing is you have to delegate to the actual community. There's no way we can read every message posted, every tweet, every Facebook post. There's no way. There's just too much. And so you have to start reaching out to the community, assigning managers, assigning moderators, and entrusting them to uh, filter, filter up the most relevant things so that you immediately do know when things are broken, when things need adjustment. Um, and it, you'll often get it wrong, and you have to adjust your community management as well. But uh, it's so important to share the reins with the community. Otherwise, you, you have no chance of success. Uh, so you talked how, about how the initial idea was uh, seeing kids play. Um, so uh, a lot of the photos in the Kickstarter campaign were adults playing. Uh, can you talk about a little more about designing games for kids and adults to play together or like what yeah. you learned about that sort of thing? That's a great point. Um, so the reason that most of the pictures are adults is all, all of those pictures are from the Kickstarter campaign. And to be about, to, to just open a Kickstarter account, you have to be 18 or older. So. Uh, that was a very easy filter for those first 30 days. Now, uh, our largest demographic is ages 7 to 12. And um, what happens there is um, kind of by accident. I think if we had set out to build a game for 7 to 12-year-olds, we would have failed. It's because we built a game um, for, <laughs> for us. Uh, who have sort of the mental capacity of like a 16-year-old, <laughs> uh, because we aimed for like maybe 16 to 18, it, it hit 16 to 18 and 16 to 30 or 16 to 40 really well, but it also appealed to the, that younger crowd who felt like, I can participate in this thing. I'm older. I'm more sophisticated. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit better uh, able to handle this than my parents thought I was. And the game does not dumb itself down for them. It tells adult jokes. Not, 
not inappropriate jokes. We have a whole separate game for that called Exploding Kittens Not Safe for Work. But uh, the core game is built uh, with slightly crude humor um, that I don't think any parent would object to. But uh, the, the kids, specifically, like literally seven-year-olds, look at this and think, oh, man, I am, I'm a big kid now. I get, to, I get to play this thing and laugh at it and, and laugh with my parents because they're laughing at the exact same jokes that I'm laughing at. Um, and we kind of did that by accident. It just happens to be where uh, Matt's sense of humor is, where my sensibility is, and uh, we stumbled into it by accident. One of, the, one of the beautiful side effects of that, which I did not see coming at all, is about once or twice a month, we get a letter from a family psychiatrist. Um, because apparently this game has worked its way into that community and is used as a tool. And we get these letters saying, thank you so much for creating this game. We use it for family therapy sessions um, where young children, like you know, 10 and under, have lost the ability to communicate with their parents and vice versa. And we use your game, we make them play together as a way to force that communication. Because every card played, like I said, was designed to create those interactions. Another way to phrase that, every card played forces a conversation of some sort. And that's certainly not something we designed for, but it is so amazing and so rewarding to see this thing actually like helping young kids communicate with their families where otherwise uh, all, those, all those lines of communication had broken down. Thank you once again for yeah, uh, joining pleasure. us and uh, please give them a round of applause. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.